I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Natalia. It's lovely to see such a great turnout, and I'm excited to hear your hard questions. Very yeah. hard, Juan Gabriel Vasquez. Um, so, hello and welcome to this LRB event. I'm Shahid Abari. I'm an academic and a broadcaster and a critic, and I'm your host. And we're going to be talking with Juan Gabriel Vasquez today. And we'll be talking about his latest novel. Oh, his latest novel to be translated into English. It's called Retrospective. And, of course, you're going to have a chance to buy signed copies of it today. Um, and it was published in the Spanish language in 2020 and has just been translated by your regular translator, Anne McLean. Yes. Um, it's Juan Gabriel's eighth novel uh, following The Shape of the Ruins, which you, you and I talked about at Hay a few years ago, a political thriller that explored conspiracy theories, assassinations, and a nation's secrets. Um, and that was shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize in 2018. You might also know Lovers on All Saints Day, short story collection. He's a man of many talents. You all know this. That's why you're here. Um, this new book, which explores the life story of a real Colombian film director, Sergio Cabrera, we're going to discuss in detail. I think it's fair to say, one that it's complicated. It's a complicated, serpentine, real yeah. story. And astonishing at every turn. Um, and we'll try to set that out in the conversation. I mean, there may be spoilers, but it's a real life as well. Um, for those of our audience who haven't yet read the book, let me lay out <clears throat> some of the bones so that you have a sense of the shape of it. The novel is set within a, a contemporary frame, first of all. Cabrera is attending a retrospective of his films at a festival in Barcelona in 2016, but stopping off in Lisbon where his estranged wife Sylvia and child are. Their marriage seems to be falling apart. And then he receives, I mean, immediately at the beginning of the book, he receives the news of his father's death. And it's this which prompts him to reflect on his life, his childhood, his family, and specifically their political allegiances. Um, that is the substance of the book. His yes. father, Fausto's commitment to communism and the repercussions for Sergio, his mother and his sister. His parents end up in China, um, men working undercover back in Colombia. Um, the teenage Sergio and his sister become guerrilla uh, soldiers, they, uh, they are working in the Red Guard in Mao's China. It's astonishing. Yeah. It's almost unbelievable. Um, yes. And the story is about 
big things one. It's about political indoctrination and the, com- the demands of activism and, and disillusionment too, I think, about political disillusionment and art, yeah. I should say. It's about art. And it's deeply interested in the way that political life is connected globally. So, you know, politics as it's unfolding in post-war Spain with Franco, in the Dominican Republic under Rafael Trujillo, the civil war in Colombia, the cultural revolution in China, all of these things are magically, fantastically, um, gymnastically connected in Sergio's life. Well, in Sergio's life and in your writing. Um, It's astonishing that you pull it off. But before we get into the thicket of it, shall we hear a little bit from it? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to him. Would you like my copy? Yes, please. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you to the bookstore for welcoming us. And thank you for doing this again and again with a thick book. It's... uh, um, So I thought of reading a little passage that is divided in two parts. One of them I will read at the beginning of our conversation, the other one at the end. So none of you leave. (laughs) Uh, This is my strategy. Um, And there is no spoiler in saying that Sergio Cabrera, this friend of mine, he was born in 1950. When he was 19 years old, he went back to Colombia after living in, in China to become a member, to join the Maoist guerrillas in Colombia. And the scene takes place when he is there. So his alias in the guerrilla is Raul. In Raul's memory, Those days were associated with the arrival of the vampire bats. Nobody knew who first raised the alarm, but from one day to the next, the patients in the hospital, men with broken bones or suffering from tropical fevers, began to complain of something biting them during the night. They realized that the bats flew around the tarps in the last minutes of daylight, swift silhouettes that men managed to see fleetingly against the indigo sky and later attacked their bare arms, necks and legs immobilized by plaster or bandages. The attacks took place once the men were asleep so they barely felt the bite and only later noticed the reddening. If they were awake, however, the bite was as painful as many needles breaking into the skin at once. Not even the locals remembered such a long-lasting plague, and none of them took the matter with as much stoicism as Raul, who counted 25 bites before his condition allowed him to start back to camp. On one of the last days of his convalescence, he had a conversation with a comrade that left him concerned, and he wondered if it was possible that a bat's fangs, which could transmit rabies, might also transmit certain forms of anxiety. That comrade's name was Alberto. He was a student leader from Monteria, skinny and cheerful, 
and endowed with a mysterious energy when he spoke. Mysterious because it didn't come from the timbre of his voice, which was rather sharp or nasal or both at once, but rather from the conviction of his phrases and his well-timed humor. Raúl was fond of this young man who had never left his city until the moment he joined the guerrillas, who laughed at anything and spoke with the intensity of those who have had an epiphany. They had become friends over time, if such a thing existed in the detachment, and they used to talk in the dead times with the fascination of those who know deep down they are similar. Anyway, after the attack of the bats, which lasted for nine fearful nights, Alberto, in his own camp bed, began saying things that seemed like they were coming from another person. He was recovering from a case of malaria, similar to the one that had laid Raúl low so soon afterwards that he sometimes accused his, hunger, his comrade of having infected him. But it's not contagious, don't talk rubbish, Raúl said once from one camp bed to the other, his words passing over those of other comrades. I don't know, but it's very suspicious, Alberto said. You come down with it, then I get it, I don't know. <clears throat> Raúl didn't take him seriously, mainly because he had other things on his mind, his leishmaniasis, which had destroyed the skin over his Achilles tendon, leaving a painful scab in place of the red sore. The humidity that destroyed his cigarettes and his writing paper, which tore at the least excess pressure on his Parker pen as if someone had thrown a glass of water over it. But later he began to worry about the bat's teeth, wondering if it was true that they sucked blood and could kill a cow. And when the bats left, as unexpectedly as they arrived, he also wondered if they caused fever. And the question, in the middle of the silent night, was feverish in itself. On another similar night, Alberto called out to Raúl, You awake? I'm here, comrade, Raúl said. Do you know what I like best about the nights? No, said Raúl. What do you like best about nights? Alberto said, It makes the green disappear. Raúl liked the metaphor and told him so, but then immediately asked what he meant. No, Alberto replied in an offended tone of voice, it was not a fucking metaphor. <laughs> At night, when the lights were off, the eyes could rest from all the green harassment, the green of the jungle, the trees, the grass, the green of the green uniforms, the green of the tarps and the canvas and the bags and the tents, all that green that overwhelmed the view and made him feel trapped, imprisoned in a jail without walls. So much green, comrade, so much green everywhere, Alberto said. Fucking shut up and let us sleep, said another voice. And Alberto's voice, fevered, tremulous, weakened, obeyed immediately. Raúl stayed alert lying there in silence but looking at the dark night, the black night that made the green disappear, the black night in which the bats no longer lurked. He stayed still, without turning on his radio, to see if Alberto would say anything else, but he didn't hear anything. A gentle breeze blew, so rare that Raúl, distracted or consoled for those seconds of unexpected relief, fell asleep. 
Two days later, Comandante Carlos said he could go back to the base camp. But the hike was farther than his body could handle, since his Achilles heel meant he could not walk without opening up the sore again in his rubber boots. So the commander agreed they should stop for the night in a campesino's house, the home of a couple of guerrilla sympathizers and parents, this should not have been said, but Carlos said it anyway, of a comrade. There, Raul would spend the night to divide the journey in two, and the next day he'd return to camp, even if he had to hop on one leg. Raul asked about Comrade Alberto. Oh, he's staying for a few more days, Carlos said. What's wrong with him? Raul asked. He needs rest, Carlos said. The comrade's not well, and the last thing he needs is combat. Is it dangerous for him? Raul asked. Well, yeah, Carlos said, but for us, too. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I didn't want you to stop because I want to have, no, I've read it, but I want to know what happens next. It's some story. This is, is a <clears throat> remarkable story. T tell us, first of all, about Sergio Cabrera. Yeah. Those of us who don't know who he is, he's a real, still living film director. Tell us yeah. a little about him. Yes, he's a filmmaker. He's the author. He was born in 1950, as I said before, and he's the author of a couple of films that are among the most important Colombian films uh, at the end of the 20th century. Um, one of them, The Strategy of the Snail, uh, from 93 or 94, is a legend of sorts for my generation. It was the big Colombian film in those days. So he's very well known. Um, and of course, part of the interest when I became a friend of Sergio at the beginning of this century, we met in 2002, um, Part of my, my astonishment, really, um, in, in relation to this friendship was to discover that behind the public persona of Sergio Cabrera, famous filmmaker, there was this life, this life of um, a man who is very shy, by the way, and who used to interrupt a casual conversation we were having in the middle of a casual dinner to say things like, yeah, that reminds me of the time when I was a red guard in Mao Zedong's China. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. Um, just the direct proof that all our lives were banal. Um, <laughs> and um, was one of my reasons to, to get closer and closer to him. Yes. Eventually, we went back to Colombia at the same time. Uh, he was living in Madrid, I was living in Barcelona. Uh, we went back to Colombia in 2012 and we became closer. We became yeah. uh, friends rather than close acquaintances, so yeah. to speak. And after, after a year or so, I, I realized that his life was not only interesting, not only full of <clears throat> little, little adventures that were interesting in themselves, and exotic from a certain point of view, but also that his life told something important. It, his life story reflected moments 
in our Colombian experience, and then I realized South American, and then maybe international, yeah. events that have shaped all our lives. Events such as communist China in the 60s, the Cultural Revolution, then the guerrilla warfare in South America in the 60s. Yeah. Events whose consequences we feel right now. Yeah. Uh, and all uh, this idea of a big narrative arc the, the, um, what the French philosopher Lyotard said about the main change that, that will take place with postmodernism, he tried to describe this in the 70s, is the change from the big stories, and he, he thought about Christianity as a big story, Marxism as a big story, the change from those big stories to the little stories, the petit racine. He said, this is postmodernism, the change from the big stories to the little stories. And I thought, I'm witnessing one of those big stories in, in, in flesh and blood, and he's a friend of mine. Yeah. So I have to tell this book. I have to write this book. And yeah. this is how we started talking with the intention of doing something with the conversations. It, it has that <clears throat> hugeness. It is a big story. And the permutations of... Marxism in the 20th century, the, the forms it takes in yeah. the, the different regimes, the ideological formations it takes, that's also part of a big story. But it's also a small story because it's also about damage, the damage done to a certain person yes. because of a certain kind of upbringing, which is what's so magnificent about your writing, I think. But can I ask you, how much of Sergio's story was public knowledge? Was it literally that you were meeting in a bar and he would say, I was a red... I was a guerrilla fighter. I was a member of the Red Army. I was yeah. Well, the, the, not the part about the guerrilla, which is still a difficult subject in Colombia uh -huh. for obvious reasons. Um, it's sensitive. Uh, he actually tried to keep the thing in secret until his uh, oldest daughter, who was thirteen at the time. This was the late, the mid nineties. She came home saying, Daddy, is this true? Were you a guerrilla fighter? Um, and so he, he had to take the whole family away for the weekend and explain what his life was in this regard. This is a very difficult to, thing to discuss in Colombia. Not only because the war is long, but because it has changed so much. So much has happened since the first idealisms of the early 60s in the shadow of the Cuban Revolution and the thing the guerrillas became later. Um, so it was all very difficult. And so that he didn't speak about. Uh, the, the Cultural Revolution, he spoke easily. And he had all these anecdotes. And I remember it was the anecdotes that just put it into my head that I had to write these books because they were eloquent. They seem to talk about things beyond the life of Sergio. So, for instance, <clears throat> there's a moment in the book, let's think of this less of a spoiler and more as a teaser. <laughs> there's a moment in which he, um, young Sergio, is about 15. He's attend attending school in uh, Beijing, and his teacher is a, a professor of um, aerodynamics. They're learning about physics and things. 
And so the teacher says that between the Soviet airplanes and the American airplanes, the American, the American airplanes are better designed. It's just a matter-of-fact thing to say in the context of a class about uh, physics and aerodynamics. But because of that, he is accused of being a traitor and a counter-revolutionary. And the professor is chased. He has to run away because of the, of the hostile um, <coughs> environment in the class. He's chased. He's, the, the, the students uh, catch, him, catch up with him. They throw him to the ground and they start kicking him because he said the wrong thing about planes. And Sergio, who is standing right there, he feels, he feels the whole thing is repugnant, but he feels he is part of it as well. He's a young, um, a young member of, of, of the group. Mm -hmm. And so he approaches the professor and he just gives him a couple of little kicks, uh, no harm intended. And then he feels guilty about that for a week or two weeks. Or uh, When he told me about that, one question popped into my head. When is a fanatic born? This was immensely interesting for me. When do ideas change the way you look at the world to make you suspend emotions and maybe even rationality and become something else? And I thought... These are the things that this novel should deal with. Yes. So they're big historical reflections, but also small changes in motion. And also what I have always liked to do in my books, try to illuminate a little bit that space in which public events meet private ones, in which yes. public lives meet private lives. Yes. You've already distracted me. I have so many things to ask you, but I was just thinking about, you know, we often have conversations about the radicalization of young men yeah. on, on different sides of the religious camps. But you're also talking about what the effects of a radicalized life are and rad the radicalization of generations of his family, his, yeah. his grandfather, his father and himself, which we'll talk about a bit more. But just to clarify for our audience, you are a novelist. This is a real person's life. You've yeah. done this before, where you write between the lines of history. If you were write a memoirist, you would go with a tape recorder and notes and you would <clears throat> do research. What was your research process in terms of, of, of releasing and, and capturing these stories from Sahim? Yeah, yeah. And his family? Yes. Um, well, it all began with conversations. Let's, I've realized that this is how I work. I'm... I begin novels as a journalist. Right. I begin novels when I, when something happens to me or I meet somebody. Uh, there's there's a there's a real life event that seems to interrogate me, seems to okay. speak of the things that I care about, usually through one person. So in the Informers, it was a, a German woman who had arrived in Colombia in in the 30s and who told me, German-Jewish woman, and who told me her story um, in The Shape of the Ruins. It was a Colombian doctor who learned that I was interested in 
a very important Colombian murder, um, the murder of Jorge Elias Gaitan in 1948. And he took me to his house and he opened a drawer and he took out a vertebra that belonged to the murdered politician yeah. who was killed in 1948. It's an amazing book. Uh, then I thought, if I'm not able to write a novel about this, I'm not a novelist. <laughs> um, so it, 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 it always begins with meeting somebody and listening to their story. And their story does something in me. So it begins with that moment of journalism. Yeah. Um, and then I, I sort of turn into a historian. I begin to look for documents to build a historical moment. And at the end of that process comes the novelist who tries, and this is my sole mission in the world, who tries to write a book in which something is said that cannot be found in history or journalism. Yeah. If, 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 my, if, if the purpose was to write something that we can already find in a memoir, in uh, a biography, in a book of history about communist China or the guerrillas in, in South America, I wouldn't write this book. I, write, yes. I, I wrote this novel because I thought I could say something that could only be found there, through fiction, through imagination, the imagination of the other. There's no less imagination in this book because the characters are real. But in this case, unlike in The Shape of Ruins, your yeah. hero, your protagonist is alive. So how, was his, how did he respond to your project? And how, yeah. how involved was he in the development of it? Did he, was it hidden away or did he have oversight? What was that like? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, we had a pact. We, um, I was this close to making him sign something, but I didn't <laughs> do it. Um, and the pact was because he was about to put his life in my hands, really, with a lot of risks because of the issues involved, political moment in Colombia, um, I assured him that he would be able to read the manuscript, the final manuscript, and do whatever he liked with it. Right. Yeah. Big how, risk. How did you feel about that? It was risk. Yeah. yeah I feel. Yeah. I felt very badly. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I was doing that, I, and I was feeling this is the worst mistake any <laughs> any rookie novelist yeah. knows. You don't give your book to your main character and say, "Do you approve?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because nobody will. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, he was a storyteller. He's a filmmaker. So he knows about art, he knows about transformations yes. through art. Um, and so I, I, I trusted that maybe he would understand, and he did, yeah. he did. Um, the proof is that he just opened his life for me. He let me dig into very complicated issues of, of conflict and tension with his father, with his family. <clears throat> I remember, I've, I've told this many times, if you have, heard it already, please forgive me, but I like to tell of the day um, this book was published in Spanish. Um, Sergio called me in the morning and said, um, I'm scared. And I tried to ease his mind and make a little bit of fun about the whole thing to ease his mind. And I said, okay, tell me three things that make you scared. And he said, well, the reaction of the right, the reaction of the left, and the reaction of my family. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
So yeah. um, I always thought it was an act of courage uh, yes. on his part. Yeah. Um, and on his sister's part. His sister is a big character in the, yes. in the, in the book. Well, let's talk about his family because you spent time in conversation with his sister. There were diaries, there were letters. Yeah. Um, can I t- ask you about Fausto, first of all, the father? Yeah. Because he is a larger-than-life character. How yes. does he shape... I mean, this is a big question. How does he shape Sergio? I think th- this is one of the themes of the book, yeah. right? Their relationship is very complicated. One of the moments in which I realized there's a book here was two years after having begun the conversations with mm-hmm. Sergio, uh, which were ostensibly uh, done with the intention of a book, but I didn't know if there was a book in there. I realized there was one in October 2016. Um, three things happened to Sergio in the same couple of weeks. His marriage was breaking down. His wife had left um, for Portugal, where she's from, with their daughter. And in the same couple of weeks, his father died. And his country, which is my own country, rejected a peace referendum that was meant to end a 50-year-old war that has well, that it, uh, effectively shaped our lives. And so three huge disappointments amounted to this kind of crisis that he was going through. And um, when he arrived in Lisbon and he learned about the death of his father, this is the opening of the book, his reaction was not to come back to Colombia to the, to the, um, the burial. And the, what I thought was only trying to answer this question, I would have a novel. Why does a, a son not go back to his country to bury his father? Yes. What is, their, what is the backstory of this? And I started to realize through conversations with him that his relationship with his father was as much defined by gratefulness and the feeling of owing your life to somebody. Because his father had grown up in theater, in Colombian theater and in TV, and so Sergio's métier, his life's work, was in a sense a consequence of that heritage. But also there was this resentment about certain moments in their life that came through in conversation with Sergio. So that that conflict, that feeling at the same time of owing everything to his father and blaming him for the worst things that have happened in your life, yeah. that was that was um, well, it's 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 one of the great subjects of fiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. This kind of of conflict. Uh, for me, it, it has always been interesting, this father and son conflict, because it, it's a kind of metaphor of history. Uh, history, father and son conflict is also a historical conflict in terms of um, two worldviews that are different and that are in conflict with each other because fathers blame their sons 
for what they have done with what they have received. And sons obviously blame their fathers for what they have received, uh -huh. for the kind of world that they have received. Um, and so this, this abstract idea took very concrete shape in this family. There is a relationship both of debt, of inheritance, and yeah. resentment or, or something else. Resentment is quite the right word. Or burden, perhaps, something like that. But yes, one of good. the inheritances is, of course, that Fausto, as you've, you've, you've already indicated, is a successful actor, is yeah. a, a rather famous actor. And, of course, that influences or shapes what Sergio is going to do. Um, and th the relationship between art and politics, art and ideology, is yeah. so interesting in this book, but in, in very literal ways, because for Fausto, his, his job as an actor provides cover for his yes. communism, essentially. Yeah. Um, and there is a very curious character, so curious, I almost thought you were making it up or Sergio was making it up, which is the, the Japanese Seki-sano? Seki-sano, yes. Seki, is Seki-sano? Yes. Tell everybody who Seki-sano is. You thought is. I, I had made him Well, up? he's just so unbelievable. I know. He's like, he's he... got a limp, but, he's yeah. into Stanislavski, he turns up and, and he changes their lives. Yeah. Well, one of the privileges of writing this book was not having to make anything up. Um, and this is one of the things I enjoyed most, because yeah. how do you deal with this? Yeah. How do you take somebody else's life, so interesting, so full of events, so full of people, um, and shape it, which is what I think I, I try to do. Yeah. Shape it in terms of eliminating things, underlining other things, and try to find in the whole experience of this family that I thought of as a big mountain, try to find the little statue that is in there. Yeah. And so part of that was not making anything up. This was my commitment to myself. So Sekisano was this, this Japanese, um, uh, he was a, a, a professor of drama, who had been through Mexico, had arrived in Colombia. He was a communist who was teaching the Stanislavski method to Colombian actors. And um, Fausto Cabrera was one of his pupils. Mm, he then was expelled from Colombia by a military government. But his life, in a sense, is a sort of very small metaphor of what the country was going through in terms of political tensions. Um, and also a metaphor of the conflicts that artists were going through in, in the 50s and 60s in, in, in South America. This is also part of what the Latin American boom had to deal with. That generation of novelists that we call the Latin American boom, that were some of the biggest influence in, in, in my writing life. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Mario Vargas Llosa, Carlos Fuentes in Mexico, Julio Cortázar in Argentina, all these people had to deal with the difficult relationship between politics and arts. Yeah. This was one of my biggest difficulties writing this book. How much, or rather, what to do to use the novel to open up a space when political judgment is suspended. This book is an invitation to the readers 
to stop judging while you're reading. Stop reading in terms of who's innocent and who's guilty, who do I agree with, who do I disagree with, but just do what I think novels do, which is open a space in which our main objective is to understand. Right. I, I always keep in mind this beautiful paragraph in, in an essay by Milan Kundera in which he says that novels are the place where we suspend moral judgment. That is to say, we don't go into a novel to condemn or absolve. We go into, an, into a novel to understand. And uh, this is what I thought I should do. Try to open up a space in which I would try to understand Sergio Cabrera. Even if sometimes I don't agree with him. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And this is, this is one of the important things I think I ask of novels. Yeah. To, to, to allow me this moral space, to not to judge. We yeah. go through our lives judging everybody. I mean, uh, Kundera says some, this is a long answer. I'm sorry. No, it's good, it's going to get but, to Sekisani. But, <laughs> yeah. But Kundera says somewhere that, um, that we, shouldn't, we should suspend our moral judgments when we go into a novel, uh, that there's nothing worse, he says, as this, as this human tendency to judge in the absence of understanding. He says, the fervid readiness to judge. And I, I often say that this is the best definition of Twitter that I've ever found. <laughs> yes, yeah. The fervid readiness to judge. Yes, yeah. So novels, in a sense, provide a space where we are not Twitter. We are not judging, we are not condemning, we are not absolving. We are trying to understand somebody else. That, that makes you hard to interview, because I want, you to, I want to ask you to make judgments. I'm going to ask you a question in a moment, but just to pick up on the Seki Sanu, he, people can work out, they can read the book and they can work out how it happens. But one of the amazing things about that story is that we have these huge geopolitical plates, tectonic plates moving yeah. in this novel under the umbrella of this man's life. Yeah. And it's small figures like a man like Sekisanu yeah. and a decision, the, in, the encounter between him and Fausto that changes everything, changes a whole generation, their whole family, generation after generation changes yeah. because of that. And that's absolutely fascinating. Yes. I want to give our audience a sense of what happens to Sergio when he arrives in Maoist China? I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> it's and and Marianella is there as the well. Book. The sister is there, the yeah. mother and father. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, this is, thank you for pointing that out about small characters influencing the big narrative. Change everything. Yeah. yeah. Because this is, I think, one of the things that novels do. Uh, history is not interested. History is. Absolutely necessary for our understanding of the past, but history is not interested in these little things. These things go under the radar, and it's in novels that we can capture them. Um, for instance, and I'm not avoiding the question, but for instance, uh, I realized at some point that Sergio, when he was 19 and he was taking the big decision of joining the, Colum the Maoist guerrillas in Colombia. Big decision, risking his life, etc. He used to talk about that with me as if this was a kind of sovereign decision, as if he was alone in taking this step. 
at some point, I realized he wasn't. I realized when he took that decision, a series of ghosts were around him, pushing him into that. One of them, a great uncle who had been a hero of the Spanish Civil War, a respected uh, rebel in that sense. Um, his heroic life had shaped the, the, the family's imaginary. And so th that pressure was on Sergio's shoulders as well right. when he decided that he would be a hero in his own terms, um, or rather in the terms of, of the political conversation at that moment and that place. And so this is something that a historian would never write about. But a novel can. A novel can trace the relationship between an ancestor who had been a, a pilot in the Spanish Civil War at the moment, 50 years later, when you decide to do something with your life. Um, so yeah, that's that. And the question was? Well, well you've been so interesting and seductive that I've lost all my questions. Ah, okay. We're going to um, run out of time, and I must make sure that our audience asks questions. But I want to ask you one thing, because yeah. it was your point about the novel being a, a space of abstention, where you, you withhold judgment. Yeah. But in a way, I want to, one of the questions for me is your position as a writer, because the, one of the themes of the books is, is the book the way is the way that politics takes shape in artistic circles. Yes. In a place like the London Review Bookshop, where we end up talking about politics. But Fausto Hang is in a circle of writers and playwrights and dramatists and artists and journalists, and they get together and drink and talk politics and recite poems, and that's part of their radicalization. And I wonder whether what your view as a writer is, do you just view that dispassionately, not judging? Or are you pointing to the naivety of those circles, the illusions and the idealism that they succumb to? Where, yeah. where do you land on that? I think I'm trying to look at the world through their eyes at that moment yeah. um, and try to respect the transformations and try to respect the ambiguities. This is a big word for me. Uh, yeah. One of the places in... in in all the ways that we have invented as human beings to explore our world, I think literary fiction is the place where we can best assess and understand the fact that our lives and our minds are ambiguous, that doubt and not certainties is what takes a bigger space in our, in our heads and our emotions. Um, the fact that we don't understand, that we don't have all the elements, that we make mistakes, that we change our minds, that we can allow two opposing truths to be true at the same time. And this is where conflict comes from. <clears throat> In particular, ideologies such as Marxism and the way it took shape in Latin American reality yes. is full of contradictions. Yeah. Contradictions, mistakes, um, mistakes that are being justified um, incredibly. Uh, and um, and th this 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 territory where uh, two ideas can be opposite and valid mm -hmm. at the same time is very difficult to understand. And I think this is one of the privileges of of narrative fiction that it allows us to understand this, yeah. to see the world from different sides, and say. 
and say, I get it from your side and get it from your side. You're both right or you're both wrong. And the truth is so always somewhere in the middle. Or there are several truths, yes. right? And allowing stories to illuminate each one of those truths is the only way to get to the whole picture. These are some things that novels can do. I don't think anybody here would disagree with you about that. Let's get some questions from our crowd. Um, there are lots. So um, let's get the question at the end here. Thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know if this is working. Um, I was really interested in the comment about ambiguity at the end. I really feel that about your writing. And I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how that ambiguity is crafted um, at the level of the sentence. I find one of the things that I really love about your writing is the way the sentences rise and fall, the inflection of Thank sentences. You. And because they make me think with my head, but they also make me feel something deep with my heart, um, which I feel is something so true about Latin American writing, actually, in my, mm. my experience. Yeah. I read your writing in English, I have to say. Um, they're great translations. They're so yes. brilliant. I love her translating. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I have a knowledge of the Spanish language. My husband's Ecuadorian, actually, and, and so I've got a sort of way in there. But I was just wondering about uh, what, in what way you're thinking about the crafting of sentences as a way of expressing that ambiguity. Hmm. Uh, I, I think every novel is... I think of novels as complicated questions. Uh, and every novel is a different question. And in that sense, every novel has to come in a different uh, formulation, I guess, or package. Mm. So it's very different to write from a first-person point of view, as I did in The Shape of the Ruins, because that in itself is a declaration of uncertainty. When you're stuck in a first-person point of view, you are saying, I'm discovering something at the same time as you, reader, are discovering it. And it's an extraordinary tool. I love the first person because of this. You get to say to the reader, as Conrad does in Heart of Darkness, as Fitzgerald does in, in The Great Gatsby, I don't know the whole story. I'm, I'm discovering the story at the same time as you. In this novel, I had to let go of that of that beautiful thing, the, the first person, the limited perspective. Um, because, because of what I said before, I was more interested in creating a situation in which I wasn't there to, to give my opinions. Some of these things I've written about in my journalism, in my, in my political articles, and I didn't want that to appear in the book. So I had to go to this third person, very 19th century, I, I, I was writing the novel and I felt I'm so old-fashioned, you know. And this, this, this um, there was virtually no difference except for the quality between the novel and Stendhal, for instance. And, um, and so that third person, I think, changed the sentence. It 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 allowed me to move things faster but it curtailed, in a way, um, the introspection, which I care a lot about. I like 
my novels to look to the inside. Um, uh, and this one, I had to make compromises. You know? Writing novels is essentially this. It's, it's inventing a sentence that works well for what you want to say and maybe sacrificing some possibilities. But it's all, I, I hope, in the service of digging up these characters' truth and make it available to the reader. Anyone else? There was one here. Any others? There, there, there's a, a lot of the writers, Latin American writers you spoke about, um, and, and so many kind of uh, modernist writers, um, left the uh, cityscapes, landscapes, countries that they write about and wrote at a distance. Yeah. Um, at the same time, um, there's, a, there's a line by Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist, that's quite interesting, where he says he kind of um, got to the point where he really resented being the kind of person that goes out into the world somewhere else, collects the stuff that he's going to write about yeah. and then comes back to yeah. his safe space yes. and writes about it. And yes. um, I think it's something that all writers grapple with. And yeah. I wonder how you grapple with that and where you are physically and also mentally when you're writing about Colombia. Yeah, well, in a sense, I would think that the, the Latin American writer's experience is exactly the opposite, right? Because we we tend to go away to write obsessively about our own places. It, it seems like James Joyce. Um, so that means for the generation that I consider my founding fathers, which is the Latin American boom, wonderful novels before that, but this is the generation that took Latin American literature to a certain maturity that I appreciate. And that had a lot to do with the relationship with modernism with Joyce and Wolfe and Faulkner. Um, <clears throat> and when you look at them, you realize that for many years, the best novel about Mexico was written in London. Yeah. And the best novel about Peru was written in Paris. And the best novel about Colombia was written in Mexico. So why do we do that? It's just such a waste of money. You know, <laughs> It allows you to distill yeah. yeah. There's a kind of distance that you achieve, not only in rhetoric, but also in worldview, when you look at your country from outside. I think that's valuable. I think there's, there are also strange contaminations, in the best sense of the word, that change your language. Uh, the language of the great Latin American writers, like the great Latin American stylists like Garcia Marquez and Borges mm -hmm. is fatally influenced by, by their knowledge of uh, other traditions. Borges particularly was accused of writing in English with Spanish words. Um, he actually used to, uh, uh, used to scandalize people saying that he had read Don Quixote first in English and then when he read it in Spanish, he thought it was a bad translation. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things I like about that Latin American generation is the lesson that both our Spanish language and the form of the novel are places open to contamination, open to assume foreign influences, mix things up, 
reject the idea of purity either in tradition or in language. Um, and these, uh, this is the, the, their big lesson, to open the doors and the windows of the house of our language and our tradition to welcome other things. I think somewhere in there is an answer to your question. <laughs> There Thank was a question. Anybody else? There was a question in the, in the end of the aisle there. Thank you. Uh, did you submit the manuscript to Senor Cabrera? Yes. And, and if so, did he hold on to it for long and make many suggestions? Thank you. Yes, I did submit the language, the manuscript to Sergio because it was part of the unsigned contract that I spoke mm -hmm. about before. And my idea was to give him a chance to recant anything, to change his mind, to think that maybe this is too dangerous or this is too harmful to somebody, to let him stay as, you know, master of his own life for all public purposes. Um, and uh, of course I was, I, I gave him the manuscript and I just crossed my fingers and thought, I hope he likes it, you know. It, it would have been the first time that one of my characters says to me, I don't like the novel. <laughs> um, to my great joy, he not only liked it, but the reading of the book opened new memories for him. Mm. He remembered new things and something even more moving. He learned things that he didn't know about his own life. Uh, so for instance, I spent a lot of time talking to him, but the other character in the book is his sister, who had, contrary to him, who had never discussed these things in public. They were a, a serious trauma for her, all these memories. She told me her stories for the first time. This was the first time she spoke about this aloud. So I spoke to her, I wrote the novel, I gave it to Sergio, and Sergio said to me, in one of our conversations, after he had read the novel, you know this, this scene about my sister, it's great, but I don't think if we, had made, if we have made such an effort not to invent things up to now, I don't think you should start inventing things now. I had to tell him that I had, hadn't made anything up, oh, that wow. these were stories that his sister had told me. Wow. And um, I had the privilege of, of watching him learn about his sister things that he didn't know. The same the other way around. So, because such a silence taboo fell on the family after these events, they used my book to get the full picture of their own lives. And this is, I think, one of the best gifts I've received as a novelist. Good question. There was another question. There was one, Anybody more question? Else? There was one over here, wasn't there? Over there. Let's get that in and then it's a question behind. I don't think that we have one last reading from you. No. <laughs> yeah, just a, sorry, quick question. Um, you also talked about the other, well, the other, the, the, the four most famous Latin American novelists, I suppose. Asimaticus and, I guess, yours, Carlos Fuentes. And they sort of hang like a shadow to some degree. Yeah. Um, everything that has subsequently gone. But I just wonder, how do you sort of think of yourself in that context? Do you think of yourself as a Latin American novelist, as a Colombian novelist, as a novelist? And also one other point on this: there was through all their works, there's very, I mean, 
odd difference, but through all their work, there's this sort of sense there's a very significant amount of polit political involvement. Yes. It's not didactic, but it's there. Yeah. And a responsibility and all these kinds of things. Yes. And it's quite grand. It's a little, but I just wonder how that plays now in this next generation, how you see yourself in that yes. context. That was, wasn't a short question, uh, <laughs> in case you didn't. And it certainly doesn't demand a short answer. It's a very interesting question that I have thought about all my life. Um, what kind of inheritance is there for me from these people? Because I, they shape my idea of what a novelist is. They shape my idea that, uh, that novels are, because they work like this in Latin America, not everybody agrees with this uh, in the rest of the world because not everywhere in the world novels have this distinctive place. They're, they're part of the political conversation. They, they actively have an impact on the political conversation, novels, or at least they had in that time. I think they do still. Um, so what do you do with that? And uh, I think what they did was realize that as citizens, they all had their political ideas, but as novelists, their convictions should be kept out of the fiction because you don't write fiction either to convince anybody of anything or to defend a preconceived idea, you write novels to explore, to go into unknown places. And this is why, in so many cases in that generation, uh, that, that thing that I think is an ideal of novel writings, novel writing, actually happens, which is that novels are more intelligent than the authors. This is what happens in, in South American, in Latin American fiction. I think it happens uh, in, in the literature that I appreciate. Novels know more things. They go to more places. They are more generous, more encompassing than novelists. Novelists may have uh, a, a fixed sectarian idea of what life is, but their novels don't. So I try to think how they, they did this, and I try to do the same thing. Uh, this is why it's so... I don't think there are two activities in writing more different than political columns and novels. Mainly because you write them from different places. You, you write political columns out of certainties because you know thing, things or you think you know things and you try to convince people that they should think the same way. Novels you write out of uncertainty. You write because you have questions, you, because you don't know things. And novels are ways to explore the things that you don't know. Um, so if, when you lose sight of that, and your novels start becoming illustrations of your previous political convictions, then literature loses, and the novel becomes a bad novel. Uh, and it's a great risk. And this is something that I have been aware of my whole life. So I try to keep their example in mind, because I think most of them are successful in this sense. Uh, you can disagree with their politics, but you say, what a great novelist. And this is because their novels are going places that their political convictions don't. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we run out of time. Do you feel like doing the reading? Can your throat cope? One? I, I don't think they... They want to. I mean, they, they, they should get they a do. glass of wine. You know.
What do, a, a show of hands. <laughs> a reading. Do you feel like you could? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Here we go. Let's That's get the reading. <laughs> oh, I, I did refill the water, but that was obviously not good enough one. I need something the to water warm, warm lubricate. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. It's it's a very short passage. It's <clears throat> so I hope you all remember what I read before. <laughs> one night they were awakened by gunfire. The whole detachment was awake and mobilized in seconds, with all their rifles raised, even though their eyes were so filled with sleep, they would not have been able to aim at anything. Like someone stepping into a dark room from bright daylight, Raul had to wait a few instants before he could distinguish shapes clearly, to recover his sense of location and perspective. And only then did he recognize Comrade Alberto. Raul, who last saw him at the field hospital the night of the conversation about the green, had kept his distance since hearing he was back. He had heard rumors about him. It was said that his cheerful personality had disappeared as if it had been a disguise he'd taken off that he'd arrived back from the hospital an embittered guy, and he no longer talked about football or told stupid jokes or laughed with those guffaws, guffaws the commanders reprimanded him for. Well, they didn't have to worry about that anymore. Alberto had stopped laughing and now spent all day complaining and grumbling and insulting absent enemies in a sort of invincible and permanent fury. Apparently, Alberto had woken up in the middle of the night and without anyone hearing him had found a San Cristobal carbine, had walked a few steps away from his hammock and had begun to fire it. Carbines had a strong recoil and there, vertical on the bark of a tree, were the impacts of the bullets, none at the height of a human being. But the incidents was enough for the rest of them to agree. Alberto, who put up no resistance when they approached to take the carbine away from him, had become a danger. Comandante Tomas issued an unpopular and painful order, and before dawn, Alberto was chained to a tree. When Raul went over to talk to him the way they used to talk, to ask him if something had happened or to calm him down with the promise that the situation was temporary, he saw that his eyes were no longer looking at him, or rather, they were no longer fixed in, the, in place as they used to be, but moved in a disorderly way, marbles rolling around inside a glass jar. He opened his mouth and revealed his yellow teeth, a grimace of effort, as if he were trying to lift something very heavy. What's wrong, comrade? Raul said. Alberto took a minute to find a face that had asked him the question. They want to kill me, he said. Who? asked Raul. All these revisionists, Alberto said. They left him there tied to the tree, shouting randomly that they were all traitors. But he never directed an insult at Raul. It was as if he didn't see him, and that was surely 
why the detachments allocated him the task of feeding the poor, demented comrade. Raúl took him food and asked him if he was well, and Alberto said no, he did not feel well, that the revisionists wanted to kill him, but this food was poisoned, he said. With time, he grew more violent and no longer said that they were going to kill him, but that he was going to kill all of them. Sometimes he started to, to talk about Chairman Mao, whose lessons had been forgotten or were unknown to the commanders, and Raúl would not have felt so moved by his madness had he not seen it as one of his possible fates. The tree to which Alberto was chained appeared one morning with neither chain nor prisoner. Raúl didn't know how it all had happened, but he asked. He had to be removed from the zone, he was told, and they didn't say anything more. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.